0: Hi, I'm Barnaby Cook, and welcome to The Exit Plan, a podcast for business owners that are interested in learning more about how to sell their business. Each episode, I interview someone who's bought or sold a business, either a creative agency or a production company. The conversation gets under the skin of why they wanted to sell or were looking to acquire, how the deal was structured, how they agreed upon a valuation, and what lessons they learned along the way. Here we go. In today's episode, we dive into the world of PR and communications with industry veteran Laura O'Connell. With a career spanning three decades, Laura guides us through her agency roots and her role as inaugural head of communications at Direct Line. After working there, she co founded Rigglesworth Consultancy, which grew into an acclaimed agency with 30 employees and subsequently sold it to Instinctive Partners. She shares insights into valuation, deal structuring, and the appeal for buyers. Laura emphasises strong team building and structured management as a key to successful transitions. Unfortunately, we had quite a few audio issues with this particular episode. We've done our best to tidy them up, but some of the audio is a bit crackly. So apologies for that. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, thanks for joining. And it would be great if you could introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about you and your business history.
1: Yes, so I'm Laura O'Connell, and I have been in the PR communications industry over the last 30 years, pretty much, and having done working in agencies such as Ogilvy and Mather back in the 90s, and then did a stint in-house, working as the first head of cons at Direct Line, which was a fantastic career break because it was such a fast growth challenge business. with a very, very dynamic entrepreneur leader who i learned a huge amount from and then having started my family i wanted to just be more flexible and business grew really without any great plan on the back of that which is one way to start a business you know literally circumstantial so over about a 12 year period a commerce business, which is called Grigglesworth Consultancy Group. And I was running this with my husband. It grew to be an agency of around 30 people, my top 100 award winning agency. And eight years ago, we sold it to one of the top 20 UK agencies, an EMEA group called Instinctive
0: Partners. What was it that prompted you to set up on your own? Because presumably, the direct line was a very interesting job, corporate life. What was it that made you want to go out and start a business?
1: So having had the thrill of a really, really dynamic head of communications role, which I had thrown myself into, I'd built the team, both the internal and external teams, put direct line through a rapid growth phase of launching into different areas, into overseas operations as well. And it was really, really full up. It was a personal decision because I actually decided to seek something which would give me better balance with raising a family. And so, after considering it for a little bit, and in fact going back to a kind of part-time consulting role at Direct Line for six months, it that felt wrong. Basically, having been the person who'd run the team for them, be just a sort of cog in the wheel. I am somebody I realised who likes to be focused and in charge of things rather than part player. I think that's something I learned about myself then so i started really with just freelancing pitching myself out and then over the first six months in tandem my husband who had been a city analyst he was also becoming a consultant and it was literally one of those things very circumstantial events whereby when you start to operate independently you get to the point where you are looking at a tile of work and at a time frame within which to deliver it and you have to make a decision about whether you're going to just keep going as a sole operator or you're going to actually say yes to all of that business but that will require more resource which is the latter decision so therefore it was probably born of timing and of circumstance and of, of deciding to say yes why not let's see how this can go let's bring people in it's an interesting choice because you know you could have a lifestyle business and literally you just sort of just do what you can do and then and just bring the money in or you are basically saying now I'm going to actually do more than that see if this can grow and actually have a team to work with me or with us so that was the decision and it is quite a big one because this had been out of literally an attic in collection so setting up a home office and so at this point you're then looking at those commitments of taking premises and all of the things that go with that in terms of responsibilities to yourself and to the others who you bring on board. So
0: how long was it from the point where you founded your company to the point where you sold?
1: 12 years. It was probably a bit longer than we had thought it might be because there were certain major events that, that sort of changed the direction of the business along the way, those being macro events, really, the credit crunch. And so on. I mean, through our business of set up, at the beginning of the '90s, and it literally went off like a train. We couldn't hire enough people. We were constantly recruiting. It was an absolute type. The sectors we were focused on, which are financial services and real estate, were having an absolutely boom decade, and we had huge connections in that area. And therefore, businesses was just knocking on our door. Other than sort of informal networking events, we did you know sort of winter party, summer gatherings, etc. We didn't have to really formally market ourselves. It was all word of mouth. And we had phenomenal client lists, you know, the likes of Aviva, Canada Live, and Launch of Eshore, RBS, back in the pre-credit crunch days, lots, all the building societies, um, Zoopla, which is a fast growth startup at that point, Jackson Stops and other estate agents, house builders. And so, you know, it was the credit crunch obviously impacted massively those sectors. We rode through that by pivoting to some extent, but it did then change the trajectory of business. And so we had to then build up again over the next five years. Okay. To the point at which it was, we were ready for exit. And the exit was factored into our thinking by other events as well, which are also personal.
0: What I was going to ask was, were you building the business with a sale in mind or were you organically growing it?
1: Well, it's a really good question, and actually, in reflecting on the advice I would pass on to others, I would say that it was primarily, I would say it was lifestyle business. It was much more than than a lifestyle business. It was fun, and as, as I just sort of outlined, we were really fortunate in those first few years in that it didn't feel like hard work at all. It was basically something that was the right thing for us. We had all of the connections and the networks, and those were times where there's a huge culture of fun in the agency and in the industry as a whole. I think if I look at the last two decade, you know, the last decade has been so much tougher for everybody, and we know that because of everybody still trying to pick up the pieces of, you know, different macro events have done to us compared to 2009, 2010. I know that we always thought, well, where will this take us, and the way it's going, it'll be sellable. But you have to kind of, you know, you're you're sort of so busy doing the day-to-day that you kind of don't really think about that seriously until we didn't until we got to the point of saying well where is the end point do we want to do this and that's something that I have has been a big learning for me and that I would pass on to anybody who's at the stage of early stage of building a business that you can't start soon enough to actually think about well, what is your game plan it might change it will inevitably change but you know to have Framework within which you're kind of working. What's what are you trying to do over three years, over five years, over ten years? Therefore, that should ladder back to what you're doing this year. That's the type of thinking that I have learned. And I suppose when I started the business, let's face it, I was sort of in my early 30s. I kind of forgive myself for being a bit naive or uneducated about thinking like it's something that definitely is a good thing for anybody starting their business to think about the whole business plan side of it is really important.
0: So when it came to the selling, did you decide to sell and go out looking for a buyer or was it the result of an unsolicited approach?
1: So we did take control of the process by engaging a very well-known dealmaker in the comms industry now that was after a phase where we were being approached and i'd say to people that okay you might get lucky with an approach but actually how do you know that that is the best thing for you i mean i'd liken it to well it's like anything really where you are receiving an inquiry you're not in control of that process you haven't really done a ground research and in fact although it was flattering to keep getting approached and we would Often have conversations with people it always didn't feel quite as if it was slightly unprepared because you know that we were responding to that organization's agenda so we decided to think it through and we obviously realized that what you have to do is to really position yourselves as an attractive asset for somebody to want to acquire so you have to really turn the spotlight on yourself do your own due diligence about what the opera is, what you are, what your future potential is. You wrote our inspectors in terms of the history, what are the assets of this business, what is its future potential, what is its marketplace that it's operating in, or why does it need to move from being independently owned? And then we did talk to a number of advisors, but we decided to work with one who I still believe is very well known in the industry but certainly was at that time incredibly strong incredibly well connected and very very sensible and full of good advice so that was the approach that we took to actually then do a review of the market and a process to actually see which agencies would come forward at that time
0: and what are those things you think that can make a business attractive to a potential buyer
1: what is your usp i mean if you know we're know your audience, this is agency owners in the creative sector. All of us, whether it's PR, whether it's advertising or production, it's what makes you better than your neighbours. You've got to really understand yourself. You've got to understand your um, how to articulate exactly what it is that you do and why you've been attractive to the clients that you've gained and have worked with to date. You need to focus on defining your culture so that you, again, understand it because of it, This is, you know, these are people, businesses, therefore cultural bit is going to be vital to make something successful as much as how good the work is that you've been doing clients. So first of all, really be honest with yourselves and just sort of go through that process of understanding and being able to articulate it and polish it, obviously. You don't need to throw in the kitchen sink. You need to be able to pitch the defining aspects of what your business is. And as I say, most importantly, it's potential because any acquirer, yes, you need a track record. but importantly, you need future growth potential. That's what I think a mistake obviously, that some smaller businesses can make is that they'll hang on until they get to the point that the owners are looking at. The green pastures of retirement and thinking well you know i'm going to and pass this on and it might be too late at that point because in any kind of growth curve you're on the downward slide so the ideal thing is to be on the up filled with further potential that's going to be the right time for your organization to benefit from being part of a bigger group partnering with another organization that's going to really benefit
0: you both did you have a strong management team in place? And additionally, did you have a lot of retained clients? What was the mix between retained and project work?
1: Yeah, so the comms industry that we work in, which is called Britain and Brand Campaigns, we had a very much a strong bias to retainer. It was up to 80% of our revenues were on retainer. And I think that's probably, it's certainly, I think, quite, I've seen it over the last decade as well, although we thought it might tip what's being more project work as many other aspects of marketing services have done. There's something about comms, which actually clients are very comfortable to have retainers because you know there's such a lot of unpredictability in terms of the service they need from you. And they really value that sort of ongoing support as opposed to just picking up and putting down around certain events. So that's very attractive, obviously, to any business because it gives great solidity. Contracts are normally, on retainers, have you know three plus, or even six months notice periods. So you know it's really great for forward cash flow. So as start of gearing up for our sale, we did make huge efforts to be more formal in the way that we manage ourselves, and we did have a really strong team of people. But we worked on putting some structure in place, which I think is very important as well, because it's got to be convincing that this business is run by a competent and cooperative and happy group of people. So, you know, we started to have formal monthly board meetings, records, uh, you know, genders, minutes, forward plans, etc. We imposed that on ourselves. It can be very hard I think creative oriented people to be like that it's something that you do need to do as well because you've got to be business-like as well as being excellent at world service that you're providing so once a year we do sort of away days and we get somebody independent in who was a friend but somebody we knew would be tough with us to actually facilitate which I think is a healthy exercise as well to actually bring that objectivity and that balance so that you know we're planning i think those are all good things for aspiring businesses to do to actually bring in outsiders to actually even though it's an informal basis like that running a workshop for you that a business planning workshop really really helpful so i think that the our management team was We could show that we would we got processes in place that we understood our business and that our sort of planning was based on solid ground.
0: Okay, so when it came to taking the company to market, that how many conversations did you have with potential buyers, and how did you decide on the eventual buyer?
1: So through the formal process, you end up with a long list and then a short list, and the advice certainly at the time is that you want to have a healthy number of conversations, but you don't want to have so many that either that everyone gets confused or that you're wasting people's time. So I think it was probably in terms of the short list of people who we actually then had serious formal conversations with, all to six. And that provided a reasonable mix of types of organization, either those that were, were sort of large groups or those that were I remember it was one that was from So the US that was looking for a UK base, it's healthy to have a good mixture in there. And those conversations are, it's like anything initially, it's chemistry, walking through your credentials. It's in the same process that you might go through when you're pitching for new business, you know, where you kind of get an intro meeting and then it becomes more detailed. And I think it then kind of whittled down to about three. And at that point, everybody's then looking more seriously at do we want to do this? What are the criteria that are important? Is there anything that isn't looking as if it could work? Is the timing right? Et cetera, et cetera. So it was a good process and it felt as if we had a good amount of opportunity throughout it. And there are lots of different factors that come into play in terms of how the final decision is made.
0: So once you have made that decision, can you tell me a bit about who the buyer was and why that felt like the right thing to do?
1: So of those on our shortlist, we were getting on extremely well with Instinctive Partners, which was an AMIR group of um, really a multiple communications offer. What we had been looking for was an organization where they would offer our clients a bigger platform because there were things that we couldn't offer that wanted. So for example, excellence in public policy, we'd been partnering with third parties to offer that service to our clients because it was beyond the you know, our in-house remit, stronger digital and creative services, and also international reach. We had got a largely UK-centred client base, but some of them did have overseas either aspects to their business or preventing us from pitching for things, whilst we didn't have that reach. So it was the offer for the client that we had, and also for our people, we wanted to give them that excitement of bigger platform of services to interact with, but also where we were going to fit in. And there were some organizations where you know, we were a highly, high margin, blue chip client base business. And there were some organizations where we felt that we would be just adding more to their strong business, but we were not going to be seen as much more than that. Whereas with Instinctive Partners, it appealed to, I think, our innate sense of being entrepreneurs because that was their pitch. They were an amalgam of other businesses that had been acquired. And also the area that we offered was something that they didn't have strong representation in. So we felt that we were going to be important to that group in a way that possibly we weren't going to be to others. So I think it all depends, again, what you want on the deal. and But those were our criteria. We want to be able to still have a sense of ownership of the direction that we could take our offer as opposed to just being the small new lot in the corner of a very big existing offer of similar things.
0: While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TV commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll-up in the video production space, and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. If you don't think you're quite there yet, I'm also spending some of my time advising smaller businesses on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, drop me a line on LinkedIn. Here endeth the advert. How was the deal structured and put together? How did you agree on evaluation and what mix of equity cash, deferred, earn out, all of that kind of good stuff?
1: So one thing that I don't think I've mentioned yet is that I do think it's really important to have very good advisors for you yourself. You shouldn't economise on that. It's really, really important to have the best advisors that you can afford. And we had excellent legal advisor, a sort of London firm, which, who I knew I'd been recommended was an absolute specialist in small business MA. There is so much in the small print of any transaction. And so I think that's something that I would thoroughly advise is to network, get recommendations, meet people, find advisors. I suppose the emphasis for us was on the legal advisors. We also used our accountancy firm who also really good, really hot on understanding numbers, looking at different aspects of accounting and things like that, which you need that professional advice. You really do from both sides, both from accountants and from lawyers. Ultimately, it's always going to be finally, and the faith, you need to have the best possible advice. So with those professional advisors, we were able to look at the offers forward and then basically go through it with a fine tooth comb and then you go through a negotiation process and again i think in a people business you are never going to get whole cash off it's not like selling something which you won't grow from it's and you are part of the capital that they're buying however you want to buy to i suppose get somebody said to me and it's very true when you do the deal it could be that the money that lands in your bank account that day is the only money you're ever going to see, and that you have got to be comfortable that that could be the case. And it's so true because that ultimately there are you know there are no guarantees on anything that might come later, unless you get maybe a structured earnout that after a year you're going to get X. But if it's tied up in equity or earnouts, there are no guarantees. I think we got a fair deal because we had over half of it in cash. We had fifty five percent cash. The valuation, by the way, relates to what the market's saying at the time about the user type of business, how bought it is. I mean, there are certain guides to say a services business in terms of what the multiple of is going to be, which is the typical way that a business will be valued. So we were in that Park of what that was. If you are you, know, you can look at valuations, you know, you can see things like tech startups that have got, they're not making a profit tech scene as so exciting. Its future potential gives it a multiple of 20, 30 times the expectation is of, of profitability. So that's a leap of faith in terms of those acquirers, but they're hoping for the next Apple, aren't they? So, you know, for the services business, it's more steady. You're looking at probably anything between 6, 10, 12 times the profit, multiple, depending on exactly where you're seen to be in your growth curve. So we were happy with that. And I think we felt that, that was, it was fair to have 55% cash. And then of the rest, there was an element which was linked to what they were terming loan notes, which is a technical raise effectively that they owe you that money back, they'll pay you back. At you're owed it. It's on the balance sheet as a owing to you as a as somebody who's been bought. There's a dividend paid on it, a coupon. And also then there was a small amount of equity as well. But as I say, the bottom line is be happy with the amount you're getting cash. If you're not, you know you've got
0: the right deal. Roughly what size was the business? You said it was about 30 people at the point you sold. What was the turnover roughly?
1: Turnover was a under 3 million a year.
0: Okay. I mean, I would say from my experience, a six to 10 multiple on a 3 million turnover business is that's a very good result. And presumably that's based on... a really
1: high profit margin. Right.
0: Okay. (laughs) And retained clients as well, I think, which makes a big difference with an acquirer looking at a business like that.
1: Yeah, big clients that were blue ship names that... I mean, I think... The lesson for us is that probably as a business we had modestly priced our. And I look back and I look at the client list and everything that it was great. It was absolutely great, but I think that it was a business, and that's why it goes back to my advice about having coaches, business advisors from an early point to actually challenge you why you're operating in a certain way, everything that your services, your pricing, etc. I think it was potential that was seen from our business and our client list that was, yeah, was seen as attractive.
0: Were you and your husband 50-50 owners? What was the ownership structure?
1: There were three of us who actually sold and went on to the new business.
0: So, yeah, there were three of you, three owners.
1: Yeah, two major and one minor. Okay.
0: And then what was the earnout period? How did the integration go? How long did you end up staying with the business?
1: There was... In the contract, we were asked to stay, well, I was asked to stay for a minimum term of five years, and my partner had slightly less than that. He decided he didn't want to actually be part of the new business school longer than three years, and so he negotiated on basis, but it wasn't an earnout as such. It was really that he then part of a group which was private equity-backed, and therefore he had a stake in the value of business going forward that was that would be, um, the aim was it we realised as that fabric equity process went through.
0: How was the business integrated? Did you move premises? Did you get new clients from other companies in the group? How did the business change in the years following the sale?
1: Yeah, so you have to work very hard at integration. It's a different dynamic to running your business because I think the onus is actually on you as the owner of the business going in to really it's a partnership but it's on reflection if the onus is on you to make it work because you know your business and you're going in wanting to keep your existing clients happy your staff happy there's a lot of change a lot of transition for everybody and I personally worked really 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 hard on that networking introducing our services to different parts of the group you know just being a really good colleague a really good friend to everybody at at a senior level and then through the business i think it did work it worked in the end incredibly well because you kept the business as a standalone for a year as well which i actually think is a good thing instinctive had done things differently different acquired companies but they decided that it was going to be sensible for us to just bed in by being separate as a the P&L of that first year and I do recommend that because I think otherwise there's just too much change all at once you've got too many balls as a senior leader to keep in the air so basically you're grafted onto the new business as opposed to just flung into the mix straight away Subsequent to that first year which was very successful in terms of we were working, we were integrating with different parts of the group, either collaborating on existing clients, reaching jointly for new ones, introducing our client base to some of the other the wider offer. I was then one of the people who led the full integration of us with the wider corporate offer and the development of that going forward. And actually that became the largest division of Instinctive Partners. So I count that as making it a hugely successful acquisition. And along the way, which it was an eight-year time I spent there, still had clients that had gone in with us at the very beginning. there were still there, connections that I had to, to come back, inst- instinctive clients. So it was without doubt a successful acquisition. But I would say the top tips are keep yourself saturated for the first year, really look after your people and your clients, but actually network internally. You have to network yourself hugely and be really, really committed to making it work. And I think there are quite a lot of examples where some owners, for whatever reason, just find that all too much. And if you don't graph away way like that, it can all fall apart and not work.
0: So it was eight years since you sold it. So have you just recently left?
1: Yes, I left literally at the end of 2022. It was the right time for me to move on. Again, a bit like the experience of the Wrigglesworth business. It, taking having to overcome that sort of issue of the credit crunch and pivoted to different types of clients and things after that during the time you know i went into instinctive at the beginning of 2015 as we know we had brexit we've had the pandemic we had of living crisis all these med mega events that have affected everybody but i got to the point where as I say, successfully integrated, successfully grown. I just felt I'd done everything that I could do in that business and it was time to move on and make space for others. And what are you doing now? I am in the early stages of building a small consultancy business, which is not an agency, but just to be build on, work with clients, work with people who doing the things that I really, really want to do without all of those responsibilities of running a big business. So literally in the early stages of doing that and a couple of other sort of set projects as well that I have. So it's a focus on a bit of a plural career, but being very flexible, but with the emphasis on quality of work, quality of people, just really, really focusing on getting a lot out of every day. A non-stressful way, that's what I'm looking for at the moment.
0: (laughs) That sounds great. So just looking back on the whole process, is there anything that you would have done differently? if you had your time again?
1: I would make plans from an earlier stage. I think that I've learned a lot over the last 20 years. We always do learn a lot, but I think that if I could tell my early 30s self what I know now, it's that you can never stop having a vision and just mapping things out as soon as possible. I do believe that you can actually make things happen once you actually start to envisage what it is that you want to achieve as opposed to just saying well that's going well that's great maybe we could do some more of that etc cetera, etc cetera. so i would definitely say have a plan i would definitely say get advice have coaches have sounding boards i think that again that will gradually feed your ability to do your job really well and get the most out of it so I think those are the kind of the key things, really. It's kind of hard to be too hard on myself because I think that we all learn, don't we, from day to day and um, from year to year. If I could pass things on to others, it would basically be plan ahead and get lots, have lots of sounding boards and lots of advice around you.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear that whole story. There was something that you mentioned actually, I think, in our conversation previously about your corporate experience, direct line and, and how useful that was once you'd sold the business and gone into a sort of a bigger group environment.
1: That's actually, you're right. From the point of view of having, I'm a bit different to a true entrepreneur. Well, to a, a classic entrepreneur, I think, yeah. Do you want me to just talk through that again? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that'd be helpful, yeah. Most entrepreneurs just set businesses up and that's all they've ever known and they've never worked anywhere else or had a boss or it's always useful to have both sides of that experience.
1: So I think I was quite fortunate to actually have worked as part of my PR career as head of comms in a very large business within a corporate environment, direct line, which was owned by Royal of Scotland Group. And that was a huge learning, having been an agency before that and then going in-house because you really understand how your service plugs in truly to the workings of a big business. You get very caught up in the sort of just the day-to-day of a creative business and things that are important about how perfect a creative idea is or its execution. Actually, when it comes down to it, you're a service that's got to actually add value to client. And you see how corporates are run The emphasis is on the numbers. The emphasis is on detail. The emphasis is on strategy. And there are all sorts of professional people who are involved in that. And you have to understand their language. You have to understand how to fit in. You have to understand how to be pragmatic. Things often change for reasons which are many and varied. And I think everything I absorbed through my six years in that role, working with those sorts of people in that environment. It was incredibly helpful to then building a business, being very mindful of what it takes to actually make a business successful. So among those are things like cash flow. I mean, the basic economics, basic financial skills are, I'd say, really valuable to anybody who's thinking of building a business, just to learn them. Even if you get a really good accountant, do a bit of homework, you understand yourself. Because at the end of the day, If your cash flow isn't working, your business isn't working. Understand the need for detail and good record keeping and the ability to actually plan and actually look at what happened last month, last quarter and understand therefore impact that's going to have going forward or how how you need to think about things changing. So all of those rigour, also the culture of working with others and having to know when to be quiet, when to actually say, when to actually pipe up and say, I really think this is important, and when to actually know, keep your head down. Those are all things that are important when you ultimately come to sell to be part of a bigger group. Is that
0: helpful? Yeah, very yeah, helpful, yeah. Good. No, that's great. I think that from my side, that's everything.
1: Great, okay.
0: Anything else that you wanted to say that I haven't asked you?
1: No, just looking at scribble the Bee thing things so, earlier in answer to the questions that you sent me.
0: Yeah, how long did it take from the point where you engaged your advisor to selling?
1: I think from the point when we engaged an advisor and created a, a through to the deal being done was roughly six months. That's quick. Which I think is which quite, was quite quick, actually, yes. And I think it was quick probably because we had that kind of warm-up of a year, 18 months of different people approaching us so we kind of gone through the process of informally working out didn't feel right I think that was helpful so therefore probably it's more likely to take you a good year to 18 months if you're starting from scratch of thinking do we really want
0: yeah I think that's typical 12 to 18 months
1: so in a way ours probably was it's just that it was some of it was sort of phase informal and then the formal phase was sort of more focused
0: all right well thank you very much for your time and thanks for sharing all of that
1: no my pleasure
0: thank you very much for listening to the exit plan podcast if you enjoyed it please leave us a review to help other people find us if you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan connect with me on linkedin